Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. What we're looking at today is the martyrdom then of a very faithful witness, John the Baptist. He was the one chosen by God to, well, be the forerunner of our Lord and Savior Jesus. He was the one who pointed people to Jesus, first proclaiming, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. As we move into the 14th chapter of the book of Matthew, we take a look at a troubling event, the death of John the Baptist, a man martyred for speaking the truth. In Pastor Sam's message, The Voice of the Martyrs, we take a close-up look at this event, so let's listen in. We're looking at the first 12 verses this morning, The Voice of the Martyrs, Matthew 14, The Voice of the Martyrs. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And you must know that Jesus said not a sparrow can fall to the ground that he doesn't take notice. God is not only aware of all that goes on in our lives and through our lives, around our lives, but, but he is intimately concerned and involved in each and every aspect of our lives. What we're looking at today is, well, the first of those in the immediate company of Jesus who would be martyred for his faith. He certainly would not be the last. In fact, we'll look before we conclude our time together at how Jesus' disciples, those first apostles, died. And it's striking to find that that 10 of the 12 were martyred for their faith in Christ Jesus, for their testimony for Christ Jesus. One of them, of course, Judas, a suicide. John exiled to Patmos, and he and he alone seemed to have died a natural death. But the Greek word for martyr, well, it's most often translated in Scripture, witness. And you need to know, of course you do know, that God has called all of us to be witnesses for Him. It's intriguing, though, to consider that He may be requiring more than we testify with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. For if He calls us to live for Him, it's possible He might call us to die for Him. And if you think, well, no, God wouldn't do that, not not to an American, not in the 21st century... You need to know that worldwide in the 20th century, more people were martyred for their faith in Christ than in any other time in church history. And you can find that documented in a wonderful book called Their Blood Cries Out. I don't know if we have it in our bookstore currently, but I highly recommend it. And I'm sure that uh, if we don't have it, Kevin, order you one. But Their Blood Cries Out. It is a powerful uh, exposition of what went on in the 20th century in the area and realm of martyrdom. Well, what we're looking at today is the martyrdom then of a very faithful witness, John the Baptist. He was the one chosen by God to, well, be the forerunner of our Lord and Savior Jesus. He was the one who pointed people to Jesus, first proclaiming, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But you've got to know that the last recorded words of John the Baptist in Scripture were words of concern and doubt. 
He'd been imprisoned. We're going to read about that here in a moment. And in that time of suffering and, and well, that time of, of uh, desperation, he sends a couple disciples to Jesus. Are you the coming one, was his question, or should we look for another? And I think most of us can relate in some way to what John was feeling when he's thinking, man, these circumstances don't line up. I know God's a loving God. I know he's for me and not against me. But my situation, my circumstances are saying, well, something altogether different than that. John asked the question, and I bring it to your attention because, well, the voice of the martyrs, we're going to consider some of the last words of some of the greatest men that ever walked on the earth. And I don't know what John's actual last words were. We just don't know. But the last recorded in Scripture, are you the coming one, or should we look for another? That means you can be a faithful witness with your life, and you can be a faithful witness even unto death and still have seasons of doubt and confusion. Don't let the devil beat you up. Don't beat yourself up over the fact that you're not always full of faith. Faith falters oftentimes in the midst of trial and tribulation. And what that does is causes us to cast ourselves on the Lord, to say, Lord, what's up? Where are you? What's happening? Well, we find then our Lord is always faithful, though he doesn't always do what we're hoping or expecting. By the way, first martyr recorded in Scripture was a guy you're familiar with. His name was Abel. There was really only one guy who could have murdered him, and he did. It shows you how quickly things went downhill from the Garden of Eden. There's father and mother and a couple boys. Abel, of course, brings a sacrifice acceptable to the Lord. His brother Cain, though, brings the works of his own hands, the fruits of his own efforts, as it were. And God accepts Abel's sacrifice and rejects Cain's, and Cain kills his brother. We're told he killed him because his, his deeds, Cain's deeds, were evil and his brother Abel's righteous. So he becomes the first person, well, martyred in the sense that here's a righteous man laying down his life for no other reason than he has borne a righteous witness that he's done the right thing. That's the category we're going to find John the Baptist in today. Now we read here of Herod the Tetrarch, who heard a report about Jesus, excuse me, and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. The Herods are a bit confusing if you've never really sat down and, and tried to um, list them out and make some sense of them. Oftentimes when we read about Herod in Scripture, we jump to the conclusion that the same Herod who killed all those children when the wise men didn't return to him after Jesus' birth, well, that might be the same guy mentioned throughout. That guy was actually Herod the Great. He was the first of many Herods. In fact, he was a lot like George Foreman, although a much more wicked guy. I'm not saying anything bad of George. But if you know anything about George Foreman, you know he named his first son George Jr. And he named his second son George as well. And then he named the next son George. And so around his house, if you say, hey, George, everybody says what? Well, that's sort of what happened with Herod. He has these sons. And at the point where he knew his kingdom, well, he wasn't going to be around forever. He, he divides his kingdom up into fourths. 
The Herod that we're looking at today, he, he was a son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, descendant of Esau, uh, of Edom. He was an Edomite. And he was the one who destroyed all those children. This Herod, this Herod, uh, the Tetrarch, and, and we know him also as Herod Antipas, he's the one who's going to, well, put John the Baptist to death. There are others. There's Herod Philip. And uh, we'll talk about him in a moment. There was Herod Agrippa, and he's the one who would later imprison Peter and put James to death. So it just seemed like if your name was Herod, you were a bad guy. But they're not all the same guy. And so uh, there's some sensitivity we want to gain to that as we read through the scriptures. Now, our Herod mentioned here, he ruled in Galilee and Perea. That was the section he was given from about 4 B.C. to 39 A.D., He uh, was a tetrarch, and as I mentioned, that just means a ruler of a quarter of a kingdom. So there in that kingdom, he was given a quarter rule. Now, after Philip's death, and there are actually two Herod Philips to make it even more confusing, one of the many Caesars, and we don't even want to go there, he gave his kingdom, Philip's that is, to Herod Agrippa. We study more about him later. He's the one that Paul would stand before. But he did something else with Herod Agrippa that really upset our Herod and, well, even more so his wife, Herodias. He made Herod Agrippa a king. You see, these guys were rulers. They were despots, but they weren't kings, not in the real sense of the word. But if Caesar says you're a king, well, you're a king. And so, well, we'll see how all this plays out as we get a little further into the drama. By the way, if you're thinking, man, this family's more dysfunctional than my family, you're right. It can get confusing in our families. In fact, I don't know if you ever heard that song, I'm My Own Grandpa. But uh, when I was playing at Disneyland, there was uh, one of those bands that came around, you know, the, the banjos and, and the guitars strumming. And they had this song called I'm My Own Grandpa. And I didn't dig out the words. I've got to find them someday. Because it through a series of bizarre events, this guy turns out, well, as the title would imply, to be his own grandpa. Well, this Herod, son of, son of Herod the Great, he assumes a quarter reign there in the region of Judea, or excuse me, of Galilee and Perea. Now, this is the area where John the Baptist was doing a lot of his work. And we're going to get a little bit of a flashback here in verses 3 through 12 because we're being told some information that, well, it already occurred. So what we do find first, though, is is hearing about Jesus, he said, thinking, this is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. That tells us John was already dead at this point. Therefore, these powers are at work in him. Now, a couple other things about Herod. He was a completely weak and immoral man. He was motivated by lust, by greed, by oh, fear. Everything and anything but principle and, and, and ideals and, and uh, a sense of purpose. In fact, he was a man who was easily swayed by others. We know that because as we read further into this, we know he wanted to put John to death earlier, but he was afraid of the people. At one point, he decides he wants to spare him, but he's afraid of Herodias, his wife. And we'll talk more about her, because she's a real mess, too. But 
we get a sense of a couple of things in Herod. First of all, his guilty conscience. Secondly, his superstitious nature. His guilty conscience? Yeah. You see, he's thinking that Jesus must be John the Baptist, risen from the dead. He had had, John, of course, we'll read it in a moment, put to death. Because John had rebuked he and Herodias for living in open and wanton immorality. It was actually worse than that. You might think, well, what's worse than immorality? Well, immorality, living with your brother's wife. And uh, that's what he was doing. And she, by the way, was, was a niece of these guys, granddaughter of Herod the Great. First married to Philip Herod and then, well, not really a divorce. She just sort of eloped and went away one day and, and ended up with this Herod. And, and so now she's living with a second Uncle Herod and, and uh, in open idolatry and immorality with him. And so John seeing this, being the kind of guy he was, he says, hey, this, this is just wrong. I don't know if anyone else in the kingdom at that time would have stood up in the face of Herod and said, what you're doing is immoral. What you're doing is illegal. And by the way, Herod, being a descendant of Esau, well, he knew the law. He, he had an understanding of, of what was going on in the, the law of Moses. And so it was not only immoral, though it was greatly that, it was illegal to marry someone within your own family, to marry someone who is already married, to marry your brother's wife. Well, it, it was about as bad as it could get. I mentioned that he had a guilty conscience, but he also had a superstitious nature. He's thinking, this must be John, risen from the dead. Now, if he'd done any research, he would have known that John and Jesus were contemporaries, that John and Jesus were cousins. And I'm sometimes amazed at the things people say about the Bible who've never read the Bible, or the things they say about Jesus. And, and I'm like, well, where did you hear that? And they said, well, some book says, you know, Mary, to Mary Magdalene had a bunch of kids and stuff. I said, I don't think so. Well, I read it in a book. I go, well, I read in this book that it never happened, you see. And I find that most people who say, well, the Bible's all mixed up or full of errors or just written by men, they've never even read the Bible. And what I like to do is just take my Bible and say, well, here, show me one of the errors, you know. Be happy to discuss that with you, to work it out with you. And once in a while, somebody will have a legitimate thing. Show, well, here's something I'm confused by. And then we get a real discussion. But mostly it's just a smoke screen. People saying, well, I don't believe it. I won't buy into it. Well, I, that's not, well, they got to deal and wrestle with those issues. Well, we're told here then that this guy was, superstitious and that he believed John might actually have somehow come back to life in the person of Jesus. Now, another irony here is that John, though he was a wonderful and mighty and faithful prophet, he was not a miracle worker. He did no miracles. In fact, you can study through, you'll find not only does the uh, scripture make that clear, but Jesus, on the other hand, he did many mighty miracles. And John points to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God. He simply could have interviewed John and figured out that this wasn't the case. Well, Herod, we're told in verse 3 then, had laid hold of John, bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Already made mention of the, the sort of bizarre uh, relationship triangle going on there. Herod takes his brother's wife, 
who should, never should have married Philip in the first place, but now she's with Herod. And John gets in his face and says, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, I don't know if it's possible for us to get a sense of how bold that was of John. Because probably the closest we could get to it would be like going to our boss or something and saying, hey, what you're doing is illegal. What you're doing is immoral. What you're doing is wrong. You need to confess. You need to repent. Chances are, well, if your boss is a Christian and you say that, there's a pretty good chance that he will confess, he will repent, and you'll get a promotion. But there's also a pretty good chance that you'll be looking in the yellow, or not the yellow pages, the, uh, the classifieds tomorrow. Why? Because if your boss doesn't confess and repent, he's not going to take that rebuke lightly. He's going to say, uh, hey, hit the road. But this is a little different, you see. John wasn't working for Herod. He wasn't in the position of maybe risking his livelihood. No, he was risking his very life to stand in the face of Herod and say, what you're doing is wrong. And I'd suggest to you that in these last days, God is raising us up, his people, to be real witnesses unto him. And if we're afraid to witness at school or at work, if we're afraid to be made fun of or mocked or rejected or fired, how will we ever stand up to the real opportunities that will later present themselves? Listen, if you're faithful now, God will continue to give you opportunities to share him. And he can completely blow your mind at the, the doors he opens and the, the uh, opportunities that he presents. But John comes before this mighty ruler. John, who was just hanging out in the wilderness, minding in his own business, telling everyone to repent, but they were coming to him, remember? Somehow he finds himself before Herod. And he tells Herod, it's not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. You see, Herod didn't really like what John was saying, but because he was weak and vacillating and, and driven not by principle or purpose, but by fear and greed and lust, he's like, well, he's the ultimate politician. Let's do a poll. Oh, the people like him. Well, we better not put him to death. Maybe we can just imprison him and see how things go. And that's really what happened at this point. He puts him in prison, wanting to put him to death, but unable to because of his fear of the masses, of the multitudes. Well, an opportunity does then present itself. Herod's birthday was being celebrated, and we're told the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased them. Herodias, one of the most wicked since Jezebel of the Old Testament. Not only was she idolatrous and immoral, not only was she ambitious beyond reason, well, she was willing to put her daughter in a position where she would be defiling herself and disgracing herself by dancing before that drunken, well, I don't know any other way to describe the crowd, just out of it crowd, celebrating Herod's birthday. Now, you need to know, and though we don't need to draw any mental pictures, it's highly unlikely that she was clogging or doing the river dance or something, you see. <laughs> the dances that they were into were lewd and immoral. And what impressed him was, well, her perversity. And I'm thinking... 
here's a young gal whose mother is supposed to be raising her to be, well, modest and, and proper. And listen, moms, take, take heed. If your little gal wants to dress like Britney Spears, it's your responsibility to say, no way. Not, oh, you're so cute in that, honey. Because I guarantee you, the guys checking out your little gal aren't thinking, she's so cute in that, honey. They are thinking completely different things. And if you're not sure, ask your husband. He'll confirm all this. (laughs) And if mom isn't going to get with it. I only say mom because I think moms need to build bridges to their daughters. You don't want to alienate dad from your daughter. There's already sort of a natural tension built in there. But I think husbands and wives need to get together on this kind of stuff. Am am I picking on Brittany? Am I down on cute little girls dressing? No, listen, that's not it at all. But there is a modesty and a propriety that no longer exists in this society. And it needs to at least exist in our church, not just when we gather together, not just for our fellowships and our baptisms and our, our get-togethers, but, but when your, your little gal goes off to school or your guy goes off to school, we're charged with the responsibility of training them and modeling to them what it means to be godly and modest. And there is a great need today for such teaching from parents. Well, Herodias was anything but godly and modest. And, and she passed on what she was, tragically, to her daughter. Not just corrupting her and sending her out to dance, but, but actually putting her up to asking, as we'll see in a moment, for the head of John the Baptist. Well, I'm getting ahead of the story, though. Herod's birthday daughter of Herodias, danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now, the Old Testament said, don't make these kinds of oaths. And if you're foolish enough to make one and you realize you have, go back and say, hey, I made a wrong and foolish oath. I need to get out of it. I ask your forgiveness. But we're going to see that Herod is the kind of guy that... Well, he won't do the right thing, but when it comes to something like, well, I got to keep my word regarding an evil thing, well, somehow his warped sense of values and, and importance would allow him to say, well, I've got to be a man of my word. Well, he should have been a man of the word, and then he could have been a man of his word, because he never would have made such an oath. Jesus, of course, tells us, let your yes be yes. And your no be no. You don't need to swear to anything if you're an honest person. And I tend to not trust people that got to swear on a stack of Bibles or on their mother's grave. Or Why do you got to swear at all? Just say yes and do it. Or say no and don't do it. And that's Jesus' counsel to us. That's his wisdom for us. Well, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother... Mark chapter 6 kind of fleshes this out for us. She goes back to her mother. She's not right there at the moment. And she says, hey, what, what should I ask for? Herodias finally gets her chance. And as much as Herod disliked John or struggled with the rebuke, Herodias was absolutely filled with hatred for him. And prompted by her mother, she says, verse 8, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Now the king, we're told, was sorry. Sorry? He's sorry? Yeah, I'm really sorry, but yeah, go chop off his head and bring it here. Nevertheless, we read, because of the oaths, because of those who sat with him at the table, he commanded it to be given to her. He was sorry 
But he still had John beheaded in the prison. He still had his head brought out on a platter before all those guests given to this young gal who then took it as a trophy back to Herodias. Well, he sent and had John beheaded in prison, his head brought on a platter, given to the girl. She brought it to her mother, as I just shared. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, went and told Jesus. Now, I do not imagine that Herod was a man who tried too hard to live a life guided by his conscience. But this passage is a good example of what can happen to us when we are more concerned with pleasing people than pleasing the Lord. In John 12:42, we are told that while Jesus had astonished many with his miracles and teachings, nevertheless, it says, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess him, lest they be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.